I mean, they really provide good medicine. It's, mm -hmm. it's good stuff, but it doesn't, it isn't enough. And I think that's the other thing to, to, to say about this, that medicine alone, and even medicine broadly defined like this, isn't the ultimate, it can't solve this problem, not by right. itself. Welcome to Crossroads, the Shelters of Saratoga podcast, giving a voice to the many different challenges of homelessness in our community. Throughout our podcast series, we'll be shining a light on the perception versus the reality of homelessness in the greater Saratoga community. The issues we'll be talking about are more than a bed or a cot or a roof. The reality is that homelessness is an intricate ecosystem, including mental and physical health, public safety, food security, resource navigation, community engagement, and longer-term sustainable housing solutions. However, perhaps most important is recognizing that the majority of the challenges of the homeless in our community are invisible. We are at a crossroads where the challenges of homelessness intersect. Hello and welcome to Crossroads, the Shelters of Saratoga podcast. I'm Dwayne Vaughn, Executive Director of Shelters of Saratoga, and I'm with Amy Hughes, one of our board members and longtime shelter volunteers. Amy, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dwayne. We are delighted to welcome Pulitzer Prize winning and New York Times bestselling author Tracy Kidder to our podcast today. Tracy's new book, Rough Sleepers, profiles Dr. Jim O'Connell and his mission to bring healing to homeless people. The book is a testament to Dr. Jim and his team at the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, which he started in the mid-80s. Rough Sleepers refers to the people who sleep outside, on the street. The term comes from the 19th century British slang for people who sleep in rough conditions. As one book review offered in Rough Sleepers, Kidder documents the three years he spent with the team that cares for Boston's homeless population, making rounds with Dr. Jim O'Connell in his van late into the night. They treated people on the street or got them into hospitals and clinics to receive care. They offered blankets and food. It is extraordinary storytelling about this incredible group of people, including the program street team, the nurses, and the program's providers, but also the resilient people they care for. We have Tracy Kidder on the phone with us today. Tracy, I have so many questions because I have oh, okay. to tell you that um, the book was extremely impactful. I, I have with me uh, Amy Hughes uh, on the podcast today, and Amy is a longtime volunteer and one of my board members. Uh -huh. uh, Good afternoon. And so, hi, hi. yeah, uh, as I had stated um, earlier, I, I think that the, the book was extremely impactful for me because I, I found ways to hopefully make myself a better, um, a, a better executive director, a better service provider to our community. And that's where I saw such a huge impact um, in, your, in your storytelling. You know, how did Dr. Jim, how did he change community's vision and actions in, in dealing with homeless? And one of the things that's interesting about that to me is that Jim has a very mild manner, although he can be forceful, but in a very mild-mannered way. Um, and he's very, um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't much like confrontation. He, he'll, he'll accept it if he absolutely has to. But it fitted pretty well with the job that he found himself doing, ultimately. Particularly when, when you talk about the community and, and especially with, when it comes to politicians and legislators and so on. Um, and directors of shelters. And he realized early on, uh, and, and again, this suited him, that if he went banging on people's doors and said, this is outrageous, you can't do this, um, he wasn't going to get very far. 
As I noticed in the book that you didn't spend or didn't have to spend a lot of time talking about getting buy-on buy-in from the politicos, getting uh, you know from the grantors that the the money was coming in, especially in the beginning, and. Um, I, I kind of took that as, as wow, he, I'm so glad that he didn't have to fight that fight, or at least I was interpreting it that way. I, I think that's correct. Yes. I, w- I was just going to say, I think that it, what struck me in the book is that there were he had more trouble convincing the people that were already in roles of working with the homeless that this was a program that would be beneficial to them. That's, I think that's probably true. There seemed to be a little bit of territorialism when it came to um, the homeless population. I think that's probably right. I think that they, I think the nurses who were so resistant to his even, you know, going to work at that Pine Street in clinic were, were wonderful people, really. You know, they just were really furious about the way in which homeless men had been treated in the hospitals and in, you know, they were nurses who were not particularly fond of doctors, that's for sure. Uh, you know, because they had seen they had seen bad stuff from them. He, he tells a wonderful story about, uh, which I didn't have room for, about going to the legislature early on in, in order to get help. By this time, he had sort of shed his, his doctor's uniform of jacket and tie, and he showed up over at the, at the state house <clears throat> without jacket and tie. It turned out that they, the head of the Senate, William Bolger, um, would, was willing to meet with him. But he, but he was on the Senate floor, and he couldn't go in there without a jacket and tie, so Jim had to borrow a jacket. <laughs> and the jacket was much too small for him, so it was almost up, the sleeves were up around his elbows. <laughs> but it worked out all right. And and the fact is that, that William Bolger really was eager. I mean, it was just astonished that a doctor, a real doctor, you know, <laughs> much less one from from Mass General was willing to work with, you know, be a doctor to homeless people. (laughs) When you talked about, you were saying they were talking about the nurses, and one thing that I noticed in the book is there was a lot of strong, bold, powerful women that had a a very big impact on the programs that uh, Dr. Jim was involved with. And, you know, uh, you know, Barbara, of course, is, is one. Particularly that, her. Yes. But, yeah, others too. There's Becky and Julie and, and yeah. the names go and Jill and they, the names go on and on. And it just seemed like they were, uh, they were so invested in this. And I think that they were very cautious. I think in the beginning, it appeared when Dr. Right. Jim became involved. Were you surprised at the number of women that were running programs? I was at, at first, and, and I remember being in a, one of those meetings of the the whole management team. I think it was about 75% women. And I, I one, one thing that I noticed, and I remember speaking a lot to Julie about this, I, I just noticed that people didn't yell at each other, mm-hmm. you know. And, and any, I, you know, I'd done a little, I'd done, spent some time in a couple of organizations that was unusual in my in my my experience, it seemed to me that 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 there was a de- definite and in the best sense feminine uh, aura to this whole deal. Not softies, you know. Barbara there was, Barbara Guinness was not, you know, soft and yielding, and you know, okay, we're gonna. She was a tough, tough woman, but she was also kind and considerate, and she was smart. I mean, that's what I really have in mind. Are the kinds of people who who went into this work wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty old now, and I've seen the world from various angles, and I would be kind of happy if 
particularly our country, were, were run by women now. <laughs> they given the women were given a chance to see if they couldn't do it a little better. Talking more about Barbara, you know, I, I noticed that a lot of the women were very grounding to the program. So, you, like you had a quote in your book where Barbara says, let's, you know, somebody said, hey, what are we going to do about the problem of homelessness? And Barbara says, yeah. let's take care of the folks we got here right now. The thing, which I think is really significant of, I think what she, I, I'm quite sure that what she meant is we, people who come here with this great, these great, often, often American notions of, we're going to fix everything and we're going to do it right away. You know, yep. they're not going to last. The work itself of trying to help people who are, or come to you so very ill, these people are already pretty ill. So their, their medical problems are complicated. Their social problems are tremendously complicated. Our Barbara was just saying, look, we got to have, just make this a job people like to do. And I think that's what Jim set out to do. We don't want saints and zealots. You know, so, on your, with the, the quote that you mentioned about, you know, we don't want saints and zealots. We want flawed human beings who do their jobs. Just make this right. an ordinary job that people like to do. That's one of the, that's actually one of our favorite quotes. And, um, Dwayne and I have both been discussing this at length, but it's um, we see that in the people that work here at Shelters of Saratoga. We see their passion. We we don't pay them very much, um, and our volunteers that come in, they don't get paid anything, and yet they come because they believe in what it is we're doing. They believe in the mission of the shelter. They believe that um, one person can make a difference, and I think we see that in your book of when you're talking about these amazing nurses with these women that ran shelters single-handedly and and Dr. Jim, these are people that just wanted to make a difference. They wanted to have an impact in a population that struggles. Um, were there Was there anyone who really stood out other than the main characters we've seen through the book? Was there someone maybe you didn't talk about that was a, a volunteer or an employee who you saw as having a big impact? There were all kinds of people on the street team. There was a young volunteer, he's, he's in medical school now, a very sweet guy, very quiet, who was a volunteer for a long time while he was finishing up college, I guess, undergraduate work. And he, he was the kind of guy who you never noticed, really, not too much, because he would, he would simply see things that weren't being done and he'd just do them. <laughs> and he was... And, and a lot of the, he got to know the patients. A lot of the patients just loved him. The psychiatrist on the team, Eileen Riley, uh, she, she'd been on for a long time. But invariably, she was working behind the scenes to try to get people to the services that mm-hmm. did exist. And I may say, say a little bit about her. You know, she, I think I, show, I, I tell you a little story about her lo- looking at under the blanket to make sure this woman there, this schizophrenic woman is okay. But, but not interfering, not mm-hmm. pink papering this woman, not getting her into court and stuff. Because you know, knowing that if she did that, she'd never have a chance to do anything for that woman. There were lots of people like that. And the the one thing that I would say about all of it is that it sounds like it is a cliche, but it has to be a whole community surrounding uh, an operation like this. Uh, you can't expect everyone in the wider community to care or even to want to have this done. I mean, you know, there'll be some active opposition, but you do need a sort of community. There were whole bunches of people, and there were wonderful volunteers who mm-hmm. who came in. You don't want saints and zealots, but you but we and want ordinary people. But ordinary people get discouraged sometimes. And oh, absolutely, and, they get discouraged. And it's, and it's even worse when you're when you see you've made good friends among 
uh, homeless people and they die. When I when I looked at that that uh, that part of the book where you were talking about saints and zealots, one of my concerns has always been, you know, if if we get staff that come in. Uh, you know, it's the the first time they're working in this type of an environment, and they get so invested that they burn themselves out. Yeah, and and that's always been a concern of mine is that you know we got to take it one day at a time, and that's it. And I want to double back a little bit where you really stress in the book about the importance of trust and relationships and how that's built. And yeah. you know, it, right in the I think it's the the second chapter we talk about the feet soaking, which is such a powerful, powerful. Mm. Um, of words that you put in there that is that was hugely impactful to us because it makes us take a stop you know makes us stop and say we can't get to this point until we get to until we start here and, mm-hmm. and to bring it down and i thought that that was critically important and which makes this this work of yours such a must read so could you talk a little bit more about that i think one of the things that jim would emphasize constantly was it was really when he he talked about there being joy in this work Mm-hmm. And he would, which was not, which is not the same thing as happiness, of course. What he said to me one time: "This is a system of friends, mm-hmm. and that's where the joy comes from." I think. Sure. When I think what, joy, you, the joy also comes from seeing the success, seeing one, one person get yeah. into recovery, get into housing, get an apartment, have continued health care. I mean, that's where you oh, get absolutely. the joy, and that's what keeps you moving forward but you have to also figure out how to withstand those times when 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 you when you when you feel like you failed correct or, or when someone relapses and i think that's when the that's when this business of the system of friends comes in it's a it's it's friendship among all the providers and, and among the providers and the patients uh and it's something that he was told not to do in medical school, you know, mm-hmm. be friendly but not a friend. But almost every decision that Jim makes proceeds from the question of how does this affect my patients? How does it benefit them or hurt them? And I, so I think, it's, you know, if you have that patient-oriented, patient-centered vision to start with, you're, that's the, and, and that's what foot washing is about, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Heck, well, think about it. How, how hard is it? To be homeless, where, where, where does it hurt the most? Probably is in your feet. They still have a foot washing clinic, by the way, at the, what's called St. Francis House. So, do you think this kind of embodies what you're saying when you say let them into your life? Yeah, I think it. I think you do have to at least to something. And you know, and it's kind of inevitable anyway. If you have, I, I did see some people there who didn't work out, didn't stay around, and I think they, I think it was largely because they weren't willing to do that. I mean, I'm thinking of Joanne, my <laughs> my favorite one, the one who tells the Harvard medical students not to be shithead doctors. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love her. And, and she, you know, she's still going strong and um, still on the board um, and so on. But but if we, if you, it, I, I think Jim himself has said this, we have to, we have to equip ourselves for, you know, we're doing a good, if we're doing a good job, part of what we're doing is making someone a lot happier than they would be otherwise but we're not necessarily making them better we're not necessarily making it possible for them to be housed permanently Mm -hmm. we'll be back in about a minute to continue our conversation with tracy kidder author of rough sleepers a profile of dr jim o'connell and his decades-long commitment to bring healing to people facing homelessness 
Hello, I'm Rosemary Royce. I serve as the Director of Development and Marketing at Shelters of Saratoga. Our podcast has a twofold mission. First, to illuminate the complex issues surrounding homelessness, and second, to foster a better understanding about how homelessness affects individuals whose lives have been dramatically disrupted, often outside their control. There's more than meets the eye. If you have a question or a comment, write to us at crossroads at sheltersofsaratoga.org. And if you like what we're doing with Crossroads, please share with your friends. Your support is important and always welcomed. We're back. I'm Dwayne Vaughn, Executive Director of Shelters of Saratoga. I'm here with Amy Hughes, one of our board members and longtime shelter volunteer. We're having a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author Tracy Ketter, talking about his new book, Rough Sleepers, and the parallels we can draw between what he witnessed in Boston and what we see every day here in Saratoga. I think the thing that you that that is a running theme throughout the book is this need to build relationship, this need to to connect both within the team, within the teams of the other organizations, and then with the homeless. And I, I just see that throughout your book, um, this this incredible power of trust and relationship that's evident through Dr. Jim and his team. Uh, and then you think about. Once you get to know these people, that's another reason, mm-hmm. another a really good, important reason to get to know them, because you get to know their stories, at least right. the ones they're willing to tell. And uh, from the, the other psychiatrist who was on the team when I got there, who's retired now, uh, Jim Bonner, he had been at this work a long, long time. And he said he figured that about 75% of his patients had been had, had suffered really severely traumatic childhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim thought the number, this percentage was a little bit higher, <laughs> which is a horrifying thought. Right. But I mean, some of the stories you hear, so when Jim says, look, we're trying to provide what you, society, didn't provide, security, education. Um, I mean, of, of the rough sleepers, an alarming percentage are illiterate. Yes. I, and, that, that was that was a stunning number when I read that in the book, and the and, and the rate at which they die. I mean, it. So what we have is a little uh, as a catastrophe. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm now, I'm now sort of reaching back for the justifications for doing this work. I think they're fairly obvious just on their in their own terms. But if we think about this as a public health issue and also as about a, a warning to mm-hmm. our country, I mean, the fact that this problem is growing bigger suggests what I think is true, which is it, it isn't a problem. It's a whole set of problems that have coalesced into this one, you know, where we, we, we simply don't have enough good housing that people can afford. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, whether that's because the housing's too expensive or because people aren't getting paid enough. Jim talks about a prism being held up to sure. American society and, and it's refracting all of our worst problems, you know, from education to criminal justice to child abuse to you know, you name it. Um, well, Tracy, you do talk about numbers a few times in the book, and I'm glad, yeah. actually, I'm actually glad you didn't spend a lot of time on it. But, you know, there's numbers that you give of, about death rates, uh, four times the rate of normal yeah. adults in the U.S., and, and rough sleepers at 10 times. And you also get into a little bit into uh, the point-in-time count, right? The point-in-time count is an annual county-by-county county metric used across the country. It's a one-day count. A snapshot, almost like a one-day homeless census, to put a number on how many people are homeless in any given community at any point in time. It's an important number used to calculate and distribute resources 
starting at the federal level like HUD. The human services sector knows that this approach results in significant undercount of the homeless, which from our point of view results in underfunding and a misalignment of resources. Jim thinks it's useful. Jim says, look, it's flawed technology, but it's consistently flawed. In Boston, at least at this point, they do not count people, uh, homeless rough sleepers who are either in prison or in jail or or, or emergency rooms. And (laughs) absurd. Also, I can't tell you how many rough sleepers told me what. Nobody knows where I sleep, and I'm not going to let anybody know. (laughs) Sure. I mean, some people are, are not found for a reason. Uh, for yeah. safety reasons or whatever that might be, they're impossible to count. Um, we see that, I think, uh, you know, not just here in upstate New York, but we see that uh, across the country, too. And what bothers me about it a little bit is, I mean, is, is, is the cynical uh, suspicion I have, which is that it, it's, it's a, it's a one-night count, so it's bound to understate, grossly understate the, the, mm-hmm. the actual numbers of people who are homeless by, by almost by one definition or another homeless and uh and that's that's gotta be kind of convenient for politicians who find this embarrassing i you know i i don't I, so i don't like it that for that reason but just to say look there are a lot of homeless people here and you're not seeing but a, but a, just a very small slice of them unless of course you live in los angeles but if, you know most of our cold city towns you're not going to see you're not gonna get a chance. and you're not even in Los Angeles gonna get a sense of all the people who are sleeping on the sofas of friends and relatives Correct. and 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 or, or and God knows all the people who live in desperate fear of becoming homeless mm-hmm. justifiable fear of becoming homeless uh, I would around, agree, yes uh, so I kind of catch through your storytelling that you know homeless are often I, I almost equate it the way you explain it is they're they're like ghosts fading in and out of the shadows that only we can see them, right? Only the people that are in the field or in, you know, working in human services that can that can see these people and they're invisible to so many people, um, yeah. regular citizens that that are walking about and they'll see the yeah. one person panhandling or the, the you know, or a, a one person that might be, you know, have a tent in the woods but don't see the true picture of homelessness. That's true, but I also think that that a lot of us. And, and I conclude myself in this, uh, was that, you know, I really find ways not to notice. Well, I know that when we're having conversations with like our neighbors and you, you referenced NIMBY and of course, very often, especially in Saratoga Springs, which is a more upscale small town, um, people like to say that, well, you know, we don't, we don't have homeless in our neighborhood. Mike, mm-hmm. well, but they do live behind the Lowe's you go to, or they live behind the restaurant that you frequent. And uh-huh. they seem stunned to find out that there are individuals living behind businesses that they frequent and have no idea. And I think that that's one of the things that you bring out is just the humanity of it, the the need for us to start to notice. I think so. I mean, we, we, we once you do notice, and once you do look... You know, once you do get to know some uh, some of the homeless people in your community, you you have no choice right. but to, re- to admit that they're human beings. This is a human as right. you know. Right. And some of their experiences that have caused them to become homeless are things that may happen to us and, and we just brush it off and we keep That's moving. True. But That's they have true. had, you know, a cavalcade 
of things happen and they or they don't have the like you mentioned the illiteracy they don't have the education in order to figure out how to move past they can't navigate the medicaid paperwork they they can't figure out how to fill out section 8 paperwork all of that is you get to a point where you it they give up um and in situations where you and i wouldn't give up we would keep pushing back and and fighting forward they don't they lose the will to continue to combat a system that is bigger than they are i agree although it's you know again i mean they it's such a complicated problem and the people themselves are complicated you know they're they have so many different kinds of stories but Mm -hmm. there are there are threads like that there and i think as my wife once pointed out to me the um, these a lot of people haven't been taught how to do the, the things mm-hmm. we did, haven't been given that that uh, extra leg up. Mm-hmm. Other and 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 others who, you know, I, I think of one guy who really wanted to keep himself clean, and and sometimes people do manage to how to do it. But in Boston, it's really hard. There aren't any public bathrooms. Yes, you know. So so we just kind of start to think of these people as incurably primitive. Or even alien, you know, they're not really like us. It, 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 we are, it, and I think people can be quite ingenious. I think I was too mm-hmm. in, in finding ways not to notice, mm-hmm. stepping over that guy in the, you know, lying on the street, and you know, not it's just smiling, maybe not even smiling at the woman who's sign is dissolving in the rain. So if I read things correctly, it seemed like Dr. Jim fairly immediately had to start to change um, how he thought about treatment. Um, you know, it, it appeared that he got away from, well, here they have cancer, let's cure this cancer. Um, but it, it seemed to gravitate as, um, as his length of time went on with with doing his work that he said, I, I need to ease their pain. I need to make them comfortable. Um, it almost seems like he was coming to terms with, I'm going to lose people. Yeah. But I think every doctor has to come to terms with that. It's a question in some cases of degree, right? But at the same time, he had to find ways to recognize that there were things they just couldn't prevent. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a, it's a double thing, but I wouldn't say that he decided they should they shouldn't be delivering first-class medicine. I think they are delivering mm-hmm. first-class medicine. I mean, they really provide good medicine. It's, mm-hmm. it's good stuff, but it doesn't. It isn't enough. And I think that's the other thing to, to just say about this: that medicine alone, and even medicine broadly defined like this, isn't the ultimate. Can't solve this problem not by right. itself. It's, important component but it can't do it well some of what you said when you were talking about the the fact that it was almost like a third world country in some of the diseases that they were seeing that your normal doctor in your upscale hospitals or doctor clinics aren't going to see and yet they were seeing things like scurvy and things that i would never have expected to see in a population in our country in this day and age. And right. so much that of that was, goes back to not only not getting basic health care, but also nutrition. It was, you know, stuff. You, you, you'd only see pictures of some of these things in medical school. Some you just never heard of, you know. Right. And they'd never been trained to deal with this kind of, this level of I guess, structural violence is probably the right word. But he did say to me once, you know, we've got some things really well under control here. You know, we're not seeing 
outrageous instances of neglect that they were before. And I think he said, I think it's something to celebrate. Mm-hmm. The death rates are still very high. And now uh, cancer, I think, is still just about at the top. I think because of fentanyl, that's getting up there to be the number one. Sure. Well, Tracy, also in the book, that there, there's a topic that we talk about here locally, you know, especially when I'm out speaking and, and um, that that the general community really struggles to wrap their head around it. And you explain it in your book, which nobody ever talks about. And that you pointed out that leaving the street to permanent housing could be terrifying. And I think the chapter is uh, death by housing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> and you ran into this, have you? Yes, oh, absolutely. All the time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we've got... Well, Tim would be glad to hear it because that's, this is great. This yes. is something that really has to be said. You know, we Sorry. have in, in our agency, we have our, our Tonys and we have our, our BJs, you know. So it was really easy for me to relate to those pieces of the story. And, and the, when, especially later in the book, where you start to story tell more about the people that are getting these services, the, the homeless on the street and the rough sleepers. And, um, you know, we've seen that, that very protective um, person on the street that we're working with and is more concerned about the people that he is on the street with and then he gets into permanent housing and it self-destructs because um because he invites all his friends in because he wants to keep his friends warm so that resonated very big with us and and he also i mean don't forget loneliness is an enormous which which amy brought up really a little while ago this is a very lonely state to be Mm -hmm. homeless need your friends around you I mean, this is that's a really consistent theme. Well, it's it's just something that's that we see that's common, oh, yeah, and, then, and I think that that the, the community, you know, the general public doesn't understand that they they say says, well, wait a minute, they they had an apartment, they yeah, they exactly. have housing, and why have they failed at that when well, well, I mean, they're all I mean, set up? I remember Joanne telling me, you know, she got put in in an apartment really before she was equipped. She had forgotten in thirty, you know, she'd been on and off the streets, but she had basically forgotten how to keep a keep house even how to how to pay a bill how to write a check she remembers she remembers looking at talking to her refrigerator saying what am, what am i supposed to do now right and right. and uh and then inviting in her friends that's the other things that become tremendously lonely mm-hmm. or in a strange neighborhood i remember jim's wife jill telling me that you know there's one guy that they, they brought in there was the power wasn't on yet that was wasn't her fault but anyway and the guy was just terrified. And, and he didn't have any friends around him. It was a neighborhood he didn't know. And he just fled. Mm-hmm. Fled the housing. was the, the, the plague. And then there was the guy who, who was so spooked by being in an apartment. He went outside and recorded the yes. sounds of the city streets mm-hmm. so that he could sleep. Mm-hmm. There have been people who've come into apartments and pitched tents. You know, I mean, it yes. takes a while. This is bigger. These are the activities of daily living that some people don't know or have forgotten entirely. Mm. <laughs> you know, right. one of the things that we run into here is we'll we'll get someone stably housed, they'll have an apartment, and yet they still want to go to the downtown parking garage and hang out with their friends. And people are like, why are they here? They have a house. Why do they still come and hang out here? It's because they've built a community. And I think that's one of the things that was very powerful Mm -hmm. in your book was showing this sense of community among the homeless population, not only through Tony and his leadership and his caring of individuals, but just in general, this, this, we, we 
really do them a disservice if we don't recognize that it is a community. And while it's not our community and it's not one that we would choose, it's one that they have built um, right. for relationship and trust and um, support and, you know, all those things. And not, it's probably not particularly healthy, but it's, but it's theirs. Um, I remember the, I, I, maybe you remember the little story I tell about the guy who had, you know, incurable um, cancer of the throat and mm-hmm. had a feeding yes. and all. Jim had gotten him into a good nursing home back in his old neighborhood, but he 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 just couldn't stand it. He had to go back to Pine Street Inn and drink with his friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he said, you know, and he said it really well to Jim. These are my people. These are the people I've spent most of my life with. What, what do you want me to do? Go sit mm-hmm. in a nursing home with people who aren't even talking to me? Well, you also talked but, about stemming. And, stemming. Um, right. When, when you had uh, one individual that you had, I believe you had interviewed, where you know, he would allow people to punch him as hard as they could in the stomach for a dollar or in the face for five dollars. And and that immediately made me think about, are, you know, are they suffering from trauma that they got very early in their life? And this is a, a, another way for them to be punished or punishing themselves. I, I just couldn't. I, mm-hmm. I had trouble understanding that. You know, the. The consequences of of early trauma we are pretty are getting pretty well documented. I mean, the ways in which they show so show up physiologically are, are pretty important and striking to me. I never when I first heard about that, I thought, is that can that be true? And apparently, it really is true. You know, we talk about housing. Housing death by housing is is one thing. We need housing. Just and and I think housing first was a splendid idea. I think Jim does. I'm mostly just you know, quoting Jim here, or paraphrasing him, but but it isn't sufficient. Mm-hmm. For some people, it would be a decent housing that they could afford uh, without, you know, giving up half their income. And, I, and by decent, I mean properly situated too. Mm-hmm. I mean, situated so that you can get to a job if that's what you want, or you can get you can get uh, wholesome food. You don't have right. to. On a bus line, near a grocery store, all those things. Yeah, and those are things that we battle here, of course, because, uh, you know, this is, our area is kind of big in hospitality and service industry (laughs) um, and uh, uh, vacations, things like that. And the people that are working those jobs are being forced further out into the country where they don't have access to you know transportation to daycare uh to all those components that they need to be able to work um so and and and, we could talk about the affordable housing piece all the time and my view has always been are we at that point where this is an acceptable number by whoever's in charge, right, is our, our politicians or whoever that might be is say that we know that we're going to lose this amount of people and that's okay. It needs to get worse before it gets better and that's what kind of breaks our heart. It's an awful thought because these numbers are growing. Uh, I mean, it went out to um, Nantucket with Jim earlier early this summer to do a the book fair there and um, it, we got asked to come to a little meeting, a meeting of maybe about 30 concerned citizens. Um, and we got an earful. <laughs> oh, no, there are no, there are no homeless people in Nantucket. Well, of course there are, <laughs> mm. but, they're, but they're not easy. And, you know, and here's a place where 
even school teachers were sleeping in their cars, you know. Right. Well, and I think we see so, that everywhere where um, I know, you know, in the D.C. area, you'll have people who have full-time jobs, but they sleep in their cars in the Walmart parking lot at night. And, you know, it's these are bigger problems that we're not yeah. going to solve. Exactly. Um, but I think one of the things that I most appreciate about your books um, is that you take individuals, you, you write about individuals who are called to some kind of opportunity and they approach it with passion and they approach it with humanism and they and you show the impact that one person can have on on a situation that seems unsolvable. And with Dr. Jim, where he he's one person and yet his impact has been has been huge and I'm I'm grateful for these evidences of hope and these evidences of you know each of us in our own little way as we are making a difference in our communities we're making a difference and I think that is that's key and I I love that about your writing thank you I I I agree with that but I should add one thing I think I wrote somewhere I think it was in in the book about mountains beyond mountains that lives of lives of service the required lives of support they were they weren't acting without these giant uh, help these these great numbers of people helping them you know that it somehow was a one-man show right but it was one man who came with they came with a passion and they they, and that passion was able to gather the right people at the right time to do the right job and in jim's case there was there were there were those women out there already uh, mostly women already you know Mm -hmm. the nurses the people who were had created or running uh running uh uh you know mm-hmm. shelters or places for, for women and i mean for men and women who are homeless i you know i but 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 it's true and and i think you know on the other hand you could say that without a jim o'connell things wouldn't have turned out i mean not quite as much would have been done I'm sure that there would have been somebody to come along, but but their personalities were such that they were charismatic, and in a way, in not in a way where you know they're cult leaders, but they are charismatic in a way that they were passionate about the work they took on, and that's catching. And I think you know we need to see that in our smaller communities as well. We need individuals who are just willing to do, you know, what I would call the next right thing. You know, just one yeah. foot in front of the other, doing the next right thing when it comes to helping a population that is not in a position, not that they don't want to help themselves, they're just not in a position to do that. That's right. And and, and also, uh, the fact that you've created a, a vehicle where people can easily come mm-hmm. and say, how can I help? It, it's so much, so much better to have some organization or organizations that where you can go to rather than trying to invent it all, having to invent it all for yourself. Right. So, That's Tracy, you know, yeah. I think we're coming to a close here, and yep. I wanted to make sure if you had any last message for us, but one thing that I wanted to really say to you is that I uh, I didn't get what I thought I was going to get out of this book. I got so much more. And what it, it taught me, you know, even though I've been in the business for over 20 years, it I, I gleaned on how I can be better at my job from this. And I think that was an unexpected discovery that really made me happy, um, especially when it came to, you know, one of the, the big messages for me in this book is, you know, I just passed by somebody and I, that may be in our program or in our shelter, and they, they put the white flag up and said, 
I want to talk for a few minutes and maybe I said a few words in passing and I got to take I got to take that time to stop and give them that five, 10 minutes, half an hour, whatever they need. And it's not that I don't want to. We get so concerned about staying on our schedules that uh, that it breaks, that it doesn't yeah. break our day. And and uh, you know what, it's okay. Let's let's break the day. Let's, right. let's do more work. Um, and I, I thank you for that. Well, thanks, I, I'm glad to hear that. It, that had some of the same effect on me. I will not walk past people now without at least acknowledging that they're there, you know. One of the things I wanted to also end with here, Tracy, is that prior to reading Rough Sleepers, I had read Dr. Jim's book of essays that he had written over the course of his time there. And, um, you know, they were they were great. I enjoyed reading them. I thought they were very informative Um, and they but they read like essays. And you mentioned early on in our conversation that you really are a storyteller. And you had in your book some of very similar stories as those essays, and yet you brought them to life. You put flesh on these people. You put flesh on these stories. And I really am grateful because there are not many authors who write nonfiction in a way that is so compelling. Um, your book was hard to put down, and I really appreciate that. And I appreciate, as Dwayne said, just the encouragement to do better. Well, thank you. Thanks, both of you. It's a pleasure to, t- to have talked with you. Thank you. But thanks a lot for your for the, your interest, and and I, and I do appreciate this. And I'll tell Doug, I'll tell Jim about our conversation. Yeah, I, we'd do. love to be able to talk to him sometime. That would be great. And you know, and thank you so much for taking the time oh, today. You're Tracy. welcome. Thank you. Thanks yes, for your thank you. Great to talk. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Amy, thank you. I'm Dwayne Vaughn, and this has been Crossroads, the Shelters of Saratoga podcast. Crossroads is produced by Shelters of Saratoga, a nonprofit human services agency serving the greater Saratoga area. Our mission is to transform the lives of our neighbors facing homelessness with support services, safe shelter, and a path to independence. Your support keeps our mission alive. Find out more about how you can help at sheltersofsaratoga.org.